Hope Church. So you are like in no danger of falling asleep during this message. I am quite, quite confident, right? So, okay, hopefully you had a good, good evening, good day in Athens yesterday as people are happy in our city. Um, So we're going to continue on in our study through the Sermon on the Mount in Acts chapter 6. So he's finished chapter 5 last week, and so we're in Matthew. Matthew, Did I say Acts? Did I just say Acts? Matthew, okay. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. Matthew, Mateo. Okay, Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. Um. Let's just read um, first verses of this, and then we'll go in prayer and, and get started. But it begins by saying, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from, from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. As surely I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day that you've given to us. Thank you for your love for us. Lord, you know um, our hearts. Help our hearts to be pure. Purify us, God. Purify us in our motivations and our desires. Um, that we would seek your glory and your honor, we would seek to praise your name, um, that we would seek that you would be um, joyful because of our lives, and that we would not seek our joy in the approval or the applause of others. And so, Lord, uh, help us, we pray, um, to see things as you see them and to act accordingly. Um, Jesus, we thank you that you went to the cross for us, that you are a risen Savior and King, that you are worthy to be followed. We praise you in your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, and so again, we're, we have this pattern uh, that Jesus is giving throughout the Sermon on the Mount, and many of these things tie back in um, to his uh, first section, his introduction, what we call the Beatitudes, where the character of followers of Jesus should be. Uh, and, and here, I think he's really striving at that character of, you know, to be, you know, blessed are those who are pure in heart. Uh, and so getting to the heart, you know, of the issues um, that we have. And so he's talking about specifically in chapter 6, the beginning of chapter 6, he's going to talk about th- three things that we do um, as part of our faith. Uh, he's going to talk about giving, praying, and fasting. Um, these are three, three elements um, in our walk um, with God. And so he wants to be, us to be careful about how we do that. And we do that um, in a way that actually pleases God and is appropriate before him. Um, and not to be corrupted by the, by the cultural norms. So we notice in chapter 5 multiple times this pattern where he says, you know, you've heard it said. And that said could be an Old Testament teaching um, or it could be a cultural you know, way of doing things that was popular at the time that he is speaking. Um, and he's going to really continue that theme because he has, you know, what you've heard or what the current cultural norm is. Then he's going to give you his higher standard for what, uh, what he expects, what Jesus expects from his followers. And then he's going to give practical 
um, steps that you can take. These are what we call transformative initiatives. You know, things that you can initiate that are going to transform your character that will help you to do things in the way, help you and I to do things in a way that pleases God. And so it's a, it's a very uh, well-organized message that Jesus gives. We wouldn't expect anything less from the best teacher that's ever been on the planet. Um, we would expect it to be given in such a way that we can take it in, understand what he's saying, and then apply it to our lives. And so he begins with this, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. So this is the current cultural norm in Jesus' day, and I would venture to guess is hasn't changed a whole lot since them since then. But the the one of the primary reasons to give charity is for one's own benefit. You know, it, we can go all the way from how it makes a person feel, which some of that isn't necessarily bad, but we have to be careful there. But to this idea of being praised, the benefit of being praised by others, the benefit of a good um, reputation. And so uh, he's, Jesus is saying here, don't do that. That's the cultural norm. His higher standard is do not conform to that. Do not seek the glory of other people to be given to you, but rather do your charitable deed for an audience of one. Do your charitable deed you know, for God, not for the praise of of other people. That's his higher standard. And then he's going to give his reasons for that and then a ways that we can go about doing this. So let's talk about a couple of these things. Uh, what are his reasons? What are his reasons for giving us this instruction? One is that you would have no reward from your Father in heaven. You think about that? No reward from your Father in heaven. Now, that's a, that's a negative thing, right? You, you don't want to be in a situation where you've done your, your charitable things and then God the Father is not pleased. Then, he, so he says, you know, be careful about that. So then he's very specific that when you do your charity, don't sound a trumpet before you. you know, and this was, I mean, you, know, you think he's talking tongue-in-cheek here, but this is actually literally what would happen. Rich person going to the synagogue to give their gift pays people to play trumpets, you know, marching before them, and then puts their gift out. So, so, and what's the response for that? Everybody's like, "Oh man, so awesome, so generous! Look at that guy." Now you think, okay, has that really changed? Now, nah. I mean, we're here in Athens, Georgia, got the University of Georgia here. Those names on the buildings are normally there. Because there is money associated with those names, right? They're not like, oh, well, we just picked a random name. Or we did, and, you know, sometimes it's somebody who excelled or did something, there wasn't money behind it. It was just, you know, to honor a particular individual who had given a lot of sacrifice. But normally, there are dollars associated with that name. And the name being put on the building, actually, the dollars wouldn't be given without that. That's like, I will give this in exchange for my name being in this place. Okay? Now, that's in the world. That's in, you know, university, academia, you know, setting or whatever. But you have the same thing in churches. 
you know, I've been to um, a number of buildings in my day where have, you know, the pews will have names on them. And why? Because there was money associated with that. Or names on bricks. And why? Because there's money associated with that. And names on stained glass. Why? Because there's money associated with that. Um, and it's often, actually, in, in the past, um, you know, you go to churches in, in Boston, for example, I've uh, been one of those, and the seating for the family, the priority seating was given based on how much money was given. So you get a better seat if you have a wealthier family that can give more. Now, James, taking from the teachings of Jesus here, says, don't do that mess. I mean, that's a summary. Of course, that's not literally what he said. But, you know, don't do that. He says, you know, when, when a rich person comes in and you say, here, sit here at this place of honor, a poor person comes in and you put them in the back, like, you are sinning. The scripture calls that sinning. Yet, people with Bibles would say, well, we're going to set up our church, quote unquote, in such a way that the rich are honored and the poor are dishonored. And if you are a second tier citizen or not, even that, there's this place for you in the balcony. Now, people actually have done that. People actually have done that kind of, of junk and put the name of Jesus on it. And those are, those are things that hinder the gospel from going forward in the world. It's, a, it's like, why is that such a big deal? Because it's, it's against, it's anti the gospel of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ going forward throughout the whole world to every tribe, tongue, nation, every person. Because we don't have a gospel that's just for the elite. We don't have a gospel that's just for one group of people. And in fact, the people who you know, started this, most of them you know, were considered you know, from the outside are looked down upon by the cultural norms. Now, Jesus isn't, and nowhere in the scriptures do we have the reverse of that. You know, Jesus says it's hard for the rich to enter in the kingdom of God. Well, why does he say that? Because when you have money, you tend not to rely on God. You know, you're not praying for the provision of your daily bread because, you know, you feel confident you can provide for your own daily bread. And so there comes with it a pride and an arrogance that comes with money that you have to work extra hard to avoid. It's still possible, and Jesus says it's still possible. And we have wealthy, very generous people in the scriptures. So it's not that it's wrong, it's just like you've got to be very careful because that can be a barrier for you or for me. Now, you know, most people are thinking, well, thankfully I'm, you know, I don't have to deal with that because I'm not rich. I'm like, okay, when's the last time you were hungry? When's the last time you were actually hungry? Like you didn't, not for like the purpose of fasting that we see Jesus talking about, like on purpose hungry for, you know, to deepen your relationship with God. But no, I'm just hungry because we didn't have money for food. But then we're like, oh, but I'm not rich. When's the last time you didn't have shelter? That not because you went camping or hiking and you did that on purpose, but because you just didn't have it. But I'm not rich. Well, okay, compared to, you know, 
NFL players or whatever that are, what, you're, okay, you're not rich. Professional athletes, okay, you're not, you're not rich. But compared to billions of people in the world, you're rich. And the sooner you grab that reality and say, you know, I'm rich or I'm, I'm pretty close to rich or I'm pretty rich. I mean, when you admit that, it, like, it's okay. It's not, I mean, the reality is a reality. It's not like by denying it, it becomes any less real. You know, so just, you know, acknowledge it and then understand that that can be a barrier to your faith that you have to be careful of. You have to guard against. But also you view it, you and I need to view that as, but we have this extra privilege then to be extra generous. Praise God. We, get a, we have an opportunity to be extra generous. And so let's pursue that. So he says, don't do these sort of things where you sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory from men. Because why are the trumpets there? To receive the glory. Now, and, and really, Jesus is striking at the motivation here. That's the key to this whole phrase, the whole, the whole section, that they may have glory from men. There's a heart motivation. There's a heart motivation that says, I want the approval and the applause of other people. And Jesus is saying, don't get caught up in that. And then he says, I, surely I say to you, they have their reward. Well, they got exactly what they wanted. They wanted the people to pat them on the back. They got people to pat them on the back and say, good job. But they don't get anything past that because God doesn't look at that as anything special. God isn't awed. He is not wowed by a wealthy person giving a piece of their wealth in order to gain the applause of others. He's just, he's just not impressed. Just not impressed. And he is not fooled. You know, other people might be fooled, but God is not fooled. He knows the motivations of every one of our hearts at all times. He knows when my heart is pure. He knows when it is not. So I have to do this. So he says to be discreet in your giving, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your father who sees in secret will himself reward you. So he says, do not let your left hand know what your right hand you know, is doing. Um, and so you know, he's saying to have this attitude and this approach where you're not seeking the praise of other people. You're not, you're not seeking for other people in our context in the church to be like, you know, doing trumpets for you and applauding for you when you give something. He's saying, don't, don't do that. Be discreet about it. Now, you might be asking, because we just did Matthew chapter 5. Um, now, it's been a couple weeks since we were in, in verse 16. But Matthew five sixteen. listen to this. Jesus says, let your light so shine before men... That they, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Notice that, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, is Jesus contradicting himself here? Did he forget what he just said? I mean, now he's giving this message much faster than I'm teaching this message. You know, he's giving it all at once. Did he forget what he said three or four minutes ago? No, he, I don't think he forgot that. I think he knows exactly what he's saying and what he's 
doing. So in reality, these two, these two passages or the, these sections of the message align perfectly with one another. In both passages, you'll see that the, the desire of Jesus is the glory of God and not our own. Because in Matthew 5, 16, he says that they may see your good works and what? Pat you on the back, give you applause, glorify you? No, glorify your Father in heaven. Glorify your Father in heaven. And here he says in chapter 6, do not give do your charitable deeds for the glory of people. There's also a difference of context. In chapter 5, the emphasis on the context is the people in the world. Okay? Your good works among, in the people of the world. Some of that you cannot hide, and nor should you try to hide. Then there's chapter 6, it's in the community of faith. So there's different contexts. And there's actually different Greek words. There's different words for good works and different words for charitable deeds. These are not the same. Uh, and yeah, I went through the different translations. Look at New King James, NASB, ESV, NLT. Um, and this is why you kind of need to tr- compare translations, NIV, tr- compare translations a little bit um, to see. And if you have you know resource, you know look look back and, and, and look and see. You can at least tell that these are different words, um, even in the Greek, even though you may not know exactly what they, they mean. You have dictionaries, and you can say, okay, good works and charitable giving or charitable deeds. This is two different things. Good works is a very general. It could be a lot of different things can fall, fall under good works. Charitable deeds or this charitable giving is like specific giving um, in the context of the community of faith. It's a very specific thing. And Acts chapter 9, verse 36, um, a woman named Tabitha um, is described this way. It says this in verse 36, at, at Joppa, the town called Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. So two different things. Good works in the community, charitable deeds, you know, her charitable giving in the church. Now, this also tells us that even when we try to let, let our left hand know what our right hand is doing, people know. <laughs> you know, still people will know to a certain degree. You can't hide everything, you know. Um, it's kind of like, uh, you know, if, 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 say, in a particular church in a, in a rural community, let's, let's go with a rural community here, um, there's been given a need that people, there's some people that are, that are hungry. Um, and then the next day, you know, 500 eggs show up um, at, the, at the building, you know, to be given away. Well, everybody in the church knows that Farmer Sam is the only farm, farmer that has a farm that big that can just in a day drop off 500 eggs. It's kind of, I mean, Farmer Sam might not want everybody to know that he did it, but there's kind of not a way to meet the need and to avoid knowing that Farmer Sam is the one who did it. Should Farmer Sam say, well, I can't give it because people will know it's me. You know, that's not, you know, how that works. But again, it goes back to the motivation of the heart. Am I giving it so that people will know and applaud that it is me? And that's a very different thing altogether.
So now that we hopefully have eliminated any um, confusion on that, um, and that's again one of those, like, you all know I, I really like the New Living Translation, um, especially for people reading the Bible for the first time or for young people, um, even for my own devotions, I use it a lot. Um, but that's one of those places where, you know, it says good deeds in both places. You know, instead of giving a more accurate, you know, it, translation. Um, and so that can lead to a confusion. Oh, well, why does it say this here in one place and this? And you don't see the distinctive difference. Um, and so that's why if you're using one of those translations that's more of a transliteration and it's not, uh, it's more of a phrase for phrase as opposed to a word for word. When you're coming to a, if you have a question or you're coming to a conclusion, like that's when you need to go and check your NASB, your New King James, your English Standard Version, and you do a comparison. And sometimes that, oh, okay, now I see the difference. And you can move on. All right. I'm not saying not to use those like the NLT because I certainly use it myself, but I'm not going to hang my theological hat on the NLT and say, well, it says it in the NLT, and so therefore, it's the same thing. Now you got to do a little more homework, you know, than that. So that's just a little, a little piece before as we move, move forward. And so, um, you know, this is why, as a church, we do the giving the way we do it. You know, a lot of people just have it taken, you know, out of their checks or whatever, and it and it just goes direct, you know, to the bank so that people don't see, you know, things going in terms of transactions. That's a pretty hidden trans, as hidden as it can be. When it's direct deposit, right? Because there's no physically putting it. Uh, but there's nothing wrong with physically putting it. But there's a reason we don't pass a plate and say, here, put your money in here where everybody sees you putting your money in here. There's a reason we don't have the box, you know, for giving. We don't have a, a place for giving right next to the bread and the cup where you come to get the bread and take the cup to remember Jesus. Because... We want you to be able to do that in a way that isn't drawing attention to yourself. Or, or it, it eliminates the, the temptation of that to at least some degree. Now people say, well, you, you get less money. Well, we get less money. People would give more if you had it, you know, where people were going to see it or you passed a plate where you would get, well, maybe. Probably. Okay. You're right. So what? So what? You know, we want to try to maintain our integrity, you know, as close to the scriptures as we can be and, and try to set things up in such a way that it's easier for people to follow the teachings of Jesus than harder to teach the people to follow Jesus. Now, is it a, do I think it's a sin to pass a plate? I and mean, we've done it before in certain, you know, important circumstances. We have done it. You know, I don't think it's a sin to do it, but as a practice, the question is, how do we make it easier for you to follow the heart of God? As opposed to, are we putting a potential stumbling block in front of you for the heart of God? Are we, are we tempting you to think about yourself and to seek honor for yourself in your giving by passing a plate? Well, we don't want to do that. So, we'll take less money. We'll just have a box in the back. I mean, that's just... That's just you know, you have to make choices as you go along with it sometimes. So that's a way, you know, just something to think about. Um, but we're trying to be consistent with what we see 
um, in the scriptures. And, and I think it's one of those deals where it, things just become cultural. And when things are cultural, there's not a biblical examination of the question. You know, I don't think people in churches where they, you know, where they pass the plate, you know, I don't think people are really thinking about, hey, is this causing someone to be tempted to do this with the wrong heart? It's not a question. If it was a question, there would be an answer and, and perhaps, a, you know, perhaps or perhaps not, but, the, you know, there'd at least be a question of a different way, you know, of, of doing it. So just an important thing is throughout your life, throughout my life, you know, we have to ask the questions about, you know, how we're doing things and are we doing things in such a way um, that encourage us to follow the heart of God or, or tempt us not to. Tempt us not to. So we need to be careful about that. Now let's move on to the next one, verse 5. He says, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in secret place, and your Father who is in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathens do. For they think they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. In this manner, therefore, pray. We'll stop there and we'll get into His manner of praying. But again, the cultural norm is public, repetitive prayers. Um, again, to show other people how religious I am. And, and that's wrong. I mean, and that's, that's wrong no matter the context. He says here in the synagogue or on the public street, whether it's out in the world or whether it's you know, in the synagogue in this context, I think we could transfer that um, into the church today, that repetitive you know, prayers for the purpose of others saying that person is very religious, it, it's wrong. God's not pleased with that. He's not honored with that. Now, I think sometimes people have taken this section, you know, too far to where you could almost like eliminate prayer in the church. But I don't think that's what Jesus is asking for here um, or looking forward to, you know, in the future. We see in the church uh, throughout the um, you know, New Testament when you pray and prophesy and we see the church gathering together, you know, to pray together. But um, we also have to recognize that in, even in this time, the synagogues were a little bit different and that was more of a. It was more of an open kind of public thing. Um, you know, I don't think that we're instructed as a church, you know, like as a church, we're going to go to a public place where everybody's going to see us and we're going to make a big show of praying. I don't think that God would be pleased or, or exactly happy with that. You know, it's as a church, even our prayer is, you know, with God and with our, you know, among ourselves um, and it's for God and it's not to be heard or to be applauded, you know, or, or to have the approval and praise of others, or for others to say how, you know, religious that we are. We should say that our prayer in the church should be an outflow of our prayer in private. You know, that's a, that would be important. I think we could agree for that. That, you know, when we come together to meet on Sunday, hopefully we've prepared our hearts in prayer and we've been praying for the meeting together. We've been praying for the worship. We've been praying for things. And you know, perhaps 
we need to just encourage myself and all of us to do that more, to spend time in prayer, um, you know, leading up in, you know, throughout the week so that our worship collectively will be all that it can be uh, with full hearts and clear minds and, and minds that are attuned to God. So it's kind of like, you know, sometimes it feels like we got to get tuned in, you know, like on a Sunday, it's like we're not really kind of there. And so we got to, you know, adjust the antenna if you go back old school and, and move the dial around and kind of like get the right, you know, try to get the right frequency. But when people are spending time throughout the week in their private prayer and, you know, in the word, in their own quiet times, it, it, we don't have to adjust the dial so much or the antennas so much. We're already more dialed in and it's easier for, for everybody than I think to get dialed in. So that's something to I think, think about and to be aware of. Um, but we need to seek the reward of the Lord and not the reward of, of people. Um, and he tells us not to pray with vain repetitions. There's an extreme example of that in First Kings 18. He says, you know, he basically is saying, don't pray in vain t- repetitions like those who worship false gods. Okay? Um, don't do that. First Kings 18, verse 17. Um, so I love this. This is one of my favorite pass- passages just because it's such an awesome visual of what happens here. But in verse 17 of 1 Kings 18, it says, When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab was a bad king. Um, he says to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Those are gods, uh, false gods. Now therefore send and gather to me all Israel, to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab went to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is, then follow him. Now that's logical, right? If Yahweh, if the, if the Lord is the true, you know, if Yahweh is the true God, follow Yahweh. If Baal is the true God, follow Baal. But don't be sitting there flipping back and forth between positions. Like, make up your mind, what are you going to do? That's what Elijah says to the nation, says to the people. And so, the people did not answer him a word. Well, that's interesting. because They kind of know they might be stuck. Um, and it says, Then Elijah said to the people, I even... I only am left, if I only am left the prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men, let two bulls be given. Let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull, and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given to them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of the Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they jumped around the altar that they had made, and at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. <laughs> 
Either he is musing or he is relieving himself or he is on a journey or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. Now that's a pretty, I mean, Elijah is throwing it down like, you know, your, your God's over somewhere playing, so he's not listening to you. Your God's using the toilet, so he's not listening to you. Your God's asleep. You got to shout louder to wake him up. He's provoking them. In verse 28, and it says, And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out of them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the evening offering, but there was no voice. No one answered, and no one paid attention. So Jesus is saying here, don't pray like that. Don't pray in such a way as you, as if you have to do all this work to get God's attention. Don't pray in such a way that, you know, through your vain repetitions, that people are going to think that you're a religious person. Your God knows what you need before you even ask it. Like, what he's saying there is, your God is alert. Your God is aware. Your God is present. Your God is all that you need him to be. And so you can ask for what you need boldness and in confidence and it doesn't say you know we also told jesus gives later a parable of perseverance so it's not a you know jesus isn't teaching here where you can just say it once and then never have to pray it again you know he i don't think he's he's advocating for that but this repetition of almost like going into another state of mind or a trance-like you know state by saying the same thing over and over and over again he's saying god's not impressed by that and it's not helpful not useful for you. We know what happens in that rest of that story. Then Baal, Elijah says, okay, you prophets of Baal, you've had your turn. Now it's my turn. So, and he tells them, you know, when the bull is there on the altar, he says, you know, he digs a trench around it. And he has four jars of water poured onto it three times. Now, that's significant because the land had been in a drought for three and a half years. And so he has all that water, that precious water, poured out onto it. And then he prays a simple, direct prayer. And God answers with fire and consumes the sacrifice and the wood and the altar and all the water you know, around to the which is not a drop of anything left. And all the people fall on their faces and they know who the Lord God is. Yes. And so we need to remember that we, if we are followers of Jesus, you know, there is, a, there is a difference. I know this is a very unpopular message to give. It's a message that people don't want to hear. People want to say, well, ultimately, you know, all the gods are the same, and whatever you call the name of your God is the name of your God. But no. Because the character, the power of our God is different. The character of our God is different. There isn't another God who put on human flesh, you know, incarnate to live among us and to go to a cross to die for our sins and to be risen from the dead. He's the only one who does that. He's the only one who can do that. So there is a distinctive difference. There is a distinctive difference. So we need to recognize that. And it is that saying, you know, it's what we tell people even today, if Jesus truly is the King of Kings, and Lord of Lords, if he truly is God, follow him. But if he's not, then don't. 
It's the same thing. Don't waver, you know, don't go back and forth. Hop between positions, you know, make a decision. But understand that Jesus said, quote, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You know, he makes a claim. If you read the Gospels, you can't help but be overwhelmed by Jesus' claim to uniqueness and to being, you know, God incarnate. It's there. Um, he does, he, you know, when he, because you, if you think about it, um, he says later on in this passage, you know, many, later on in the Gospels, he, he's going to say this, this thing of, you know, many people are going to say to me, Lord, Lord. He says, they're going to say to me, Lord, Lord. Now think about that. Either he is who he says he is, or he's the most arrogant human, just a man in the flesh. The most arrogant human to ever walk on the earth. You know, right up there with any others making that claim. If it's a false claim, he's only full of pride and arrogance when he says, Many will say to me, Lord, Lord. And I will declare to them, depart from me, I never knew you. And he's he's making himself to be the judge. The ultimate judge. Like you can't have somebody who says, you know, that he has that sort of power and authority and just say, well, you're just a good teacher. Or you're just, you're, you're one of many. No, I mean, either he is, you know, one of these guys that we would call a cult leader who leads other people to drink the Kool-Aid, literally, like leads them to death, which many people have died for the name of Jesus. Either he is a David Koresh or one of these types, or he is the king of kings. Don't waver between positions. He's, he, he can't be something in the middle of that. I know that sounds extreme, but based on what he said and what people have done for his name, that people have literally have died because they said, I'm not going to deny the name of Jesus. And other people have said, okay, then you're going to be burned alive. Okay, then you're going to have your head chopped off. Okay, then you're going to, this spear is going to go through you. So either, I mean, Jesus led them to that and he either has the right to lead them to that as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, or he does not as a human, prideful, arrogant cult leader. He is one of those two things. He is not. He cannot be. It almost drives me nuts when people say, you know, he was a, just a good teacher. And he taught some good moral principles. Well, you'd have to ignore over half of what he said to come to that conclusion. You've got to take the whole thing. You've got to take the whole and so that's um, something to consider on that. But then, so Jesus is very clearly telling us how he wants us to pray and says, you know, don't be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need before you ask him. And then he says, in this manner, therefore, pray. It's important, he says, in this manner. He is not giving another vain repetition, he's not giving another thing just to be repeated, you know, ad infinitum, where this is the only prayer people pray. I'm. It's not wrong to say this prayer, but it does become wrong if it's the only prayer you pray because Jesus has given you a pattern and what God wants is your heart. What God wants is your heart. He wants to hear from you in a personal relationship 
one to another. He wants to hear your prayers and your words, not just the repeated prayers of another person. So he says, Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. So again, who are we addressing? God the Father. How are we addressing him? That he is holy. So we have a set, you know, beginning here, we have a set standard of we know who we're talking to and it puts us into a place of of reverence. Your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. And so that's a matter of perspective. To take us away from, because our first things that when we pray, a lot of times, you know, we immediately a lot of times want to go to the current situation of why we are praying. Now, there's times where that's certainly appropriate. If, um, you know, you're, you're in a car and it goes off the road and you're in water first, you, know, you want to roll your window down before it gets under the water, just one thing there. Um, and you want to get your seatbelt off as soon as possible. But in that, you may be praying, God, help me. Like, I, I'm not saying that you need to go through the uh, process of, okay, first let me make sure, you know, I, I do these formalities of the holiness of God and who I am and recognition of the kingdom of God and all of that. It's okay. And that's those certain scenarios just to say, God, help me. <laughs> I'm going to die. You know, like, and, and, and seek that. That's okay. But just in our general prayer life, you know, and things that are, yes, they're important and, and they're vital, um, but they have a little bit less urgency than the car is literally sinking into the water. Um, you, get, you have a moment. You have a moment to have the right perspective of who you're speaking to, the holiness of God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Understanding that there's bigger, there's something bigger than the immediate circumstances that I'm in. That's the purpose of that. That's what Jesus is trying to get us to be. Is like, Yes, these immediate circumstances are important. God cares deeply about these. You know, God knows every, every hair that you have on your head, or lack thereof. He knows all of them. You know, he, he knows everything about you. He knows every finest detail, and certainly he cares about all of that. So it's not about him not caring, but it's about us having the right perspective and the right you know, order of things, that the kingdom of God needs to be first. Kingdom of God needs to be first, and our, needs, our thoughts need to be about the kingdom of God. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So this teaches us something I believe very important theologically. In heaven, where God's realm is fully, you know, all done, that his will is done there perfectly. May it be so on earth as it is in heaven. But what is that telling us? It's not here on earth. It's not. There's things that happen on this earth that go against the will of God. For example, every time I sin, that goes against the will of God. When I sin, it goes against the will of God. You know, that's um, now God in His grace and mercy. For me, forgive me, God can even, you know, take a, a bad things that have happened and, and turn them and use them for His glory and for His good and for our good. But what we see here clearly 
is that, and we see it throughout the scriptures, our earth is messed up, and we see that throughout our own perspective and the things that we deal with. You know, when you, when you see a hungry kid, that's because God's will isn't done on earth as it is in heaven. Because God's will in heaven is there aren't hungry kids. When, you, when you're dealing with a child that's been abused, that's not as it is in heaven. It's different. It's bad. It's evil. It's wicked. There's a battle here on this earth. And so we need to, in this way, we're praying for more of the kingdom of God to be evident and present. And that's why it's important that we share the gospel and we give people the, the life-transforming good news of Jesus Christ. Because the good news of Jesus Christ can change any situation, can change any person. I mean, we've, you know, we've seen it you know, with our own eyes, and some of those you know, testimonies are dramatic. When you've got somebody, growing up, a kid growing up in a home on a dirt floor, with an alcoholic father and all the problems and all the dysfunction in the family, and you see that life transformed to a young man then becoming a dentist to help his community, that didn't just happen. There's a trans- something transforming that happened there. And what, what happened there is that the Lord Jesus Christ grabbed hold of that young man's heart and that young man surrendered to the love and power of Jesus Christ in his life, and that will change things for his life and then for generations to come. More of the kingdom of God on earth. Less of the kingdom of darkness. So that's where we have to understand that in all of the other good we may do, our priority still has to be the transformative power of the good news of of Jesus Christ himself, and that is the good news. It's the transformative power of Jesus Christ, the King of of kings. And when Jesus comes into that life, into that heart, and sets up his throne, and the person wants to live in relationship with him, that ultimately does change things. It changed things. It might not change all the circumstances, especially not immediately, but it does, in fact, change the trajectory. It might be a slow move at first, but it changes everything. And so that's why Jesus Christ is our one hope. He is our greatest hope. And yes, we will try to do all the other good that we can do in terms of starting a school for girls and helping you know, feed the poor and all the other good that we can do. Yes, but in the context and in the priority of Jesus Christ being our Savior and King. And that he needs to, to be that in the life of people that desire transformation, desire a new life. And so that's where we have to give that priority because we could get what, what's happened, you know, and, and you see it, uh, and, and, and now we're starting to have a swing back, but in, you know, church, many churches, quote-unquote, left Jesus in exchange for just doing some good things. And many churches said, well, we can just tell people about Jesus, and then that's a good enough thing on its own. We don't have to do other things. Now, 
on one side, that's still the same. On the other side, people have started to move back and say, well, we can do more good things too. We can do more good things too. And that, and that as long as we keep sharing Jesus with people, we actually have more, what do you know? We have more opportunities when we're nice, generous people. Surprise, surprise. Um, I saw one, you know, one picture, and this goes back to the Matthew 5 section, and just you know, it ties in here, again, with the giving and the things like that. You know, the church that we're partnering with in, in Mexico has been helping an area that was really affected by the earthquakes. Uh, and one, I'm just one place, and it's indigenous people, and, and they just got leveled. Um, and there's this one picture that was shared with me of this older woman. Somebody else is receiving the box of food, but this older woman... You're just there looking up and with her hands up. Like, she knows, she is recognizing. The people helping her didn't do it so that they would be glorified, but they did it so that she would glorify God. And that's what she was actually doing in that moment that was captured. And that's a beautiful thing. That's transforming. And when people know where the help really comes from, you know, we have to understand we're, we're just vessels for the love and grace and mercy and help of God in people's lives. We are the avenue which God often uses for that. We're either good vessels or we're not great vessels. You know, that's, that's the thing, but we're not the source. Anything that we have that's good, ultimately... We've been given that and given those opportunities and given everything else because of Jesus. You know, that, I was reminded of that last night. We were having some dinner with some, um, some friends. And something, it was kind of, I didn't expect necessarily for this to come up. But it was kind of like, well, how long have you you've been here? Or like, when did you come you know, to the States? And it was, people were saying how many years going around. And then one of them asked, um, and how long for you, Chet? You know, it was a joke, you know, and it, it, you know, it was funny. And I was just like, you know, I've been here since 1975. <laughs> you know, so it was like, but I didn't make a decision. You know, I didn't make any choices, you know, along those lines. That, that particular advantage just kind of happened to me. And I'm thankful for it. But I didn't do that. You know, but then I have to do other things to take advantage of that. But then other doors are open for me that I didn't open. Other people opened them. You know, so ultimately, you know, I'm not the source of the good that I have in my life. I needed to be a participant. I needed to be a willing participant in that. And, and you know, I could have, I had options to throw all of those good things away. Y'all have options for that. So there's a responsibility, but there's not a place for arrogance. You know, I, I, you know, I get frustrated when I see people say, everything I've gotten, I've gotten because I've worked hard. Hmm, really? You decided what country you'd be born in? That's amazing. That's really amazing. You, you decided what the economy would be like in the you know, years of your growing up, what educational opportunities would be available to you? Wow. You picked pretty well. I mean, you didn't pick like 500 BC in some poor place, you know. You didn't pick like, hey, I'm living in occupied land and people are getting slaughtered. That's, that's pretty awesome. 
of you to be able to do that. Everything is because of my hard work. Now, that's just arrogance. That's just arrogance. It's okay to say, yeah, I was a participant and I had to work hard. That's okay. But let's balance. Let's have some balance. Let's have some balance. Because other people on the other side will, I know I didn't do anything to deserve it. Well, no, you had to participate. You had to go to class. You had to study, you know. I mean, you had to do some things. Like, uh, on both sides, it's just just ridiculous. Our inability to have balance. It's like extreme is the way of the day. You know, it's really hard for us to have any balance on anything. So, whew, anyway, all right. Let's finish up. Let's just finish up on this. We're going to get off of that one. But we, so we have, Jesus says, You will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So again, you know, this is an interesting one. He doesn't say, Lord, give me my bread years from now, but that constant ongoing dependence on God. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Like there's an expectation there that we're going to sin and we need God's forgiveness and we need to forgive those who sin against us. There's an expectation that's given. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That's an understanding that there are things in this world that can trip me up. Lord, please keep me from those. Please keep me strong from those. Deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The motivation again. The glory of God. His kingdom, his power, his glory. And then Jesus says in 14, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive their their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And so, let us pray that God will give us the strength and help us to forgive others. Again, we've talked about this you know, numerous times, so I don't feel a need to go fully into it today. It doesn't mean giving the person who's sinned against you, especially in a, in a particular grievous way, the same you know, access to do that again, um, you know, depending on the level of sin you know, that we are talking about here. But there is a forgiveness that should happen. Um, because if we don't forgive others, that lack of forgiveness becomes a cancer within ourselves. You know, hatred within our hearts destroys us. It's a cancer that kills. Uh, and so we need to be careful that we don't um, allow the enemy to win twice. By what, he can win by what happened and then win again by our response to it. And it's actually then in that case, it's not just winning twice. It's usually a long-term pattern where he wins again and again and again and again um, because of our unwillingness to forgive. So we need to be careful about that. Now, the last one, verses uh, 15 through 18, we'll finish here. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that may, they may appear to men to be fasting. I surely, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that you do not appear to be men to be fasting. But, you didn't, but to your Father who is in the secret place, and your, and your, sorry, but to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Okay. 
this fasting, it is a biblical you know, thing. Um, you know, it's actually interesting. Jesus' followers were asked, or Jesus was asked, why don't your disciples, why aren't they fasting? Like we see others fasting. And he says, you know, while, the, you know, while they're with the bridegroom, as he refers to himself, it's a celebration, it's a party, there's not a need for fasting, but when I'm gone, they will. So expectation of Jesus is that his disciples, you know, fast and pray, and, and we see that, you know, throughout the scriptures. Um, but, you know, in this time, what did people do when they were fasting? Well, I'm going to put on my worst clothes, disfigure the face, walk around the street like I've got some sort of bad medical condition. And when people come up and say, hey, what's going on? Are you okay? Like, oh, I'm all right. I'll be okay. I'm just fasting. Oh, you're so wonderful. So religious. Continue on. <laughs> you know, like... Really? You know, I mean, but that's what people do. And, and even, you know, today in our cultures as well, there's times of year where people make a big celebration of fasting and make it a very public, like everybody is going to know what I'm doing today. And that's, biblically speaking, Jesus says, don't do that. That no people, other people shouldn't know. And I think it is appropriate at times, like you have the whole church, church's gathering we see in, in the New Testament Church is gathering specifically to fast and pray. There's time to call the whole community for that purpose, to do it together. And then obviously, well, people know we're all in this together. We're all fasting. But it's not, you know, not putting it on Facebook. Our church is fasting. Pray for us while we fast. And show how great we are. Facebook post wouldn't actually say the last sentence, but, you know. So, you know, we have to be, be careful. It doesn't need to say less. But um, we, have to be careful. we have to be careful about that. Um, so there is a place for private fasting. There's a place for collective fasting. But there's not a place for publicly I want the world to know and pat me on the back that I'm fasting. Just don't. Jesus. I mean, and, it's, and the things about it, too, is just that's, that's hard for me to understand is that when Jesus says something this clearly, like, why is it hard not just to do what he says? You know, why do we have to say, well, my religious tradition or my cultural tradition says I should do it this way. But Jesus said this. And, but now, here's the thing about that. When I say that, now here's where we're all in trouble. Because there's something you like to do, there's something you don't like to do, or whatever, and then we have to answer that question. But what does Jesus say? And when Jesus says this, am I willing to change that thing that I like or that I don't like and act according to what Jesus says? Because it's very easy to say, well, this is obvious to you and to you and to you about what Jesus says about these things. But now if it's something that I don't want to do, or in another case, something that I do want to do, am I willing to look at myself the same way and say, See, yes or no. We'll get more into that as Jesus goes on to talk about judging others. Okay, so we need to be careful. Um, But for our church, I want us to understand there's a biblical place for us to fast, individually, collectively, not a place for us to do it in a way that draws attention to ourselves. I think written today, because it says, anoint your head and wash your face, this would be like, Hey, if you're going to fast, like take a shower, put on nice clothes, go about your business. 
you know, you don't have to get into it. If somebody offers you food, say, no, thank you. You don't have to go, no, thank you. I'm fasting today. Just so you know. So everybody knows. You know, it's just discreet. Maybe better to do it on a day when you don't have to be around a lot of people. So um, there's that. So hopefully we can take the words of Jesus to heart because he cares about our hearts. Um, and he seeks that our priority in all of our worship, when we pray together or when we pray, period, our giving, our giving, our prayer, our fasting, that all of it's for God and not for an audience of other humans. But that it's for him. As we said before, like with Tabitha here in Acts chapter 9, there's going to be some times where you're just you know, doing it for the Lord, but other people are going to see it. Hopefully in the world, when they see it, the glory is for the Father. And the same in the church. You know, we do, because we also have biblical instruction, you know, to encourage one another, right? So I don't want the result of this message being that, well, nobody's going to ever encourage anybody anymore because we're afraid that we'll have done the wrong thing with what Jesus is saying here. No, we still encourage each other. But how do we encourage each other and how do we receive encouragement? How do we receive encouragement? Um, Glory to God. When somebody says, thank you for this, or good job for this, what's our, should our natural true response from the heart be? Give thanks to God. Glory to God. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now. We thank you uh, for your goodness to us. Thank you for your love for us. As we come to take the bread and the cup, um, help us to do so, Lord, with pure hearts. Hearts that please and honor you. Help us to do it in a way that shows our love and affection for you, God. Um, Lord, help us in our motivations in all things to seek your glory, your name, your fame, uh, not ourselves, God. Uh, May you, you, Jesus, as John the Baptist uh, taught us to say um, and to to have in our hearts, may you, Jesus, increase and may we decrease. Um, Lord, we love you and we give you praise this morning. Uh, Be with us in our time of, of worship now, we pray. In your name, Jesus. Amen.